I thank Melinda for the invitation, and uh, actually, I woke up thanking God this morning that it wasn't raining, uh, and uh, uh, thank God for a wonderful fall day. Even though it's a little windy, uh, it made it possible, I hope, for all of you to uh, come and join us safely this morning. And uh, uh, before starting the lecture, I, uh, in the name of the Institute of Carmelite Studies, would like to uh, welcome all of you uh, to this series uh, on Carmelite Authors uh, 101, we call it. We hope it's a basic introduction to the main Carmelite writers. And to welcome you who were with us for the first three lectures uh, in the spring semester, and those who are with us for the first time, to welcome you and hope you uh, will join us again in November and December for the other two lectures on uh, Blessed Elizabeth of the Trinity and in December on uh, Edith Stein. I also want to thank uh, Melinda and the Continuing Education Department of Boston College School of Theology and Ministry, as well as Boston College's Center for the Church in the 21st Century, uh, for co-sponsoring with our institute uh, this series on uh, Carmelite authors. Uh, you may not be aware of this, but uh, the bond between the Jesuits uh, and the Carmelites goes way back uh, to the days of St. Teresa of Avila's reform of the Carmelites in 16th century Spain. Uh, Teresa herself was deeply indebted uh, to the Jesuits for the spiritual guidance uh, that she received from them. And in the book of her life, her spiritual autobiography, she makes this comment. She says, quote, Praised be the Lord who has given me the grace to obey my confessors, even though imperfectly. They have almost always been these blessed men from the Society of Jesus, although, as I say, I followed them imperfectly." End quote. Sounds just like Teresa, doesn't it? And John of the Cross, too, as we'll see in uh, this morning's lecture, uh, was greatly influenced by the Jesuits. Uh, before he entered the Carmelites, he attended a Jesuit college for four years. Uh, where the foundations were laid for his later literary and spiritual developments. So it, I think, is fitting that now, four centuries later, uh, a Jesuit university and an institute of Carmelite studies collaborate in bringing you this lecture series. Our shared hope in these lectures that they will deepen your faith and hope in God's healing and sanctifying power uh, in your lives. The title of my lecture this morning is John of the Cross, Carmelite Author. Sometime after 1581, John of the Cross wrote these words of advice for those who desire union with God quickly. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. 
Approximately three years earlier, John wrote of his own disposition of everything that led to his possession of the all. He exclaimed, O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. In both passages, John speaks of the emptiness of self that is required for transformation in God through love. In the first, he writes in prose as a teacher, pointing out the deprivation required for union with God. In the second, he writes as a poet, using the metaphor of darkness to express his own experience of deprivation. Readers who seek John primarily as a guide to union with God usually bypass his poetry and go directly to his prose writings to find inspiration for the spiritual journey. But a closer look at John's life reveals that as an author, he was first and foremost a poet. And only secondarily did he turn to prose to teach others the spiritual implications of his poems. If, in the spirit of this lecture series, we wish to understand John as a Carmelite author, we must first see him as a poet. In this lecture, I trace John's development as a poet, but one who eventually used both poetry and prose to help us understand and indeed to help us seek the direct experience of God, which ultimately is beyond the power of all language to express. Colin Thompson, in his excellent book, St. John of the Cross, Songs in the Night, has observed that literary critics who admire John's poetry often ignore his prose commentaries, just as theologians who seek only his spiritual teaching in his prose frequently skip his poetry. Relatively little attention, says Thompson, has been paid to the connection between them. This morning, I try to show that connection. I try to reveal the intimate relationship between John's development as a man of God and his prose and poetry that made him an author whose lyric poems are esteemed among the finest in all world literature and whose prose brought him to be considered one of the world's greatest spiritual masters. The Carmelite author, who is both patron of Spanish poets and mystical doctor of the Universal Church. So let's look at John's life beginning in the beginning. Juan de Yepes was born into poverty in 1542 in the small Spanish farming village of Fontiveros, located in the plains of Castile, 25 miles northwest of the city of Avila. 
He was the youngest of three sons born to Gonzalo de Yepes and Catalina Alvarez, who eked out a meager living as weavers. Worn out from the hardships of poverty, Gonzalo died when John was only two. His brother Luis died several years later, probably from malnutrition. Rejected in her efforts to find support from her husband's prosperous relatives in Toledo, Catalina moved her family to Medina del Campo, a busy commercial center north of Avila, with a population of 30,000, where she could earn a living as a weaver and find institutional help in raising her two sons. In Medina, Catalina placed John in the Colegio de la Doctrina, a residential institution in which orphans and children of the poor were clothed and fed, taught to read and write, instructed in the fundamentals of their Catholic faith, and apprenticed in a trade that could secure their later, their later livelihood. Early in his teens, John came under the patronage of Don Alonso Alvarez de Toledo, administrator and chaplain of Medina's Hospital de la Concepcion, which was devoted solely to caring for victims of the bubonic plague and other contagious venereal diseases. There, in exchange for room and board, John both served as an orderly and begged alms in the streets for the 50-bed hospital. Don Alonso also provided paternal guidance for John through his adolescence and arranged for him to attend the new Jesuit college that opened in Medina in 1551, located near the Plague Hospital. From ages of 17 to 21, John divided his days between his work in the Plague Hospital and his education with the Jesuits. From his earliest years, John thus knew deprivation firsthand. Poverty, loss of a father and brother through death, dependency on the charity of others, and daily contact with serious disease. Yet he was also blessed with a caring and resourceful mother, an interested adult mentor, and a classical spiritual Christian education. These formative years undoubtedly begot in John's heart a longing for a life that transcends the limitations of this world and union with the God who is the source of the love and generosity he found in his family, his mentor, and his teachers. The memory of these years likely inspired him in later life to write the following in his The Ascent of Mount Carmel, quote, All the wealth and glory of creation compared to the wealth that is God is utter poverty and misery in the Lord's sight. The person who loves and possesses these things is completely poor and miserable before God and will be unable to attain the richness and the glory 
of the state of transformation in God. End quote. <clears throat> At the age of 21, his four years of study in the Jesuit college completed, John entered the Carmelite order. Why did he choose the Carmelites in preference to the Jesuits, who were attracting the brightest and best of Spain to their number, or following in Don Alonso's footsteps to the secular clergy that would have provided lifelong financial security for himself and his family? Probably because he reasoned that the Carmelites, with their long eremitical and contemplative tradition, could best nourish the longings for a transcendent God that were alive within his young heart. John's four years as a student in the Jesuit College in Medina were significant in his formation as a poet. In his classes on rhetoric and Spanish literature, he would have studied and possibly experimented with the various forms of Spanish poetry of his day. These included the popular glosas or coplas, whose opening lines are repeated at the end of each successive stanza, stanza to express variations on a theme. Composed to be put to music and sung, these poems frequently expressed the paradoxes of love. They were often used allo divina, that is, a popular love song would be applied to the love of God or other spiritual themes. Composing and singing glosas was a popular recreation in Carmelite convents of that day. There was also the traditional romance or ballad with its customary eight or nine syllables to a line and identical rhymes repeated at the end of even lines throughout the poem. This was the literary genre of the great 12th century Spanish epic poem El Cid. Finally, there was the artistic lira or canción or the lyric poem. More elevated and complex than either the glossa or romance, the lyra usually sang of intense love, either human or divine. All of John's later poetic writings would be expressed in one of these three formats, the glossa, romance, or lyra. And these he probably learned before he entered the Carmelites. And so let us turn now to his entry into the Carmelite order. <clears throat> Drawn by his desire for union with God and schooled in the poetic forms of his day, John entered the Carmelite novitiate in his hometown of Medina del Campo in 1563. Following a year's novitiate, he went on to the Carmelite House of Studies, San Andres, at the prestigious University of Salamanca to prepare for ordination to the priesthood. A bright and responsive student, John excelled in his philosophical and theological studies and was eventually made a prefect of studies, 
a position similar to a graduate teaching assistant today with responsibilities to teach class daily and participate in public defense of theses. At Salamanca, John was ordained to the priesthood in July 1567. <clears throat> Despite the success of his student years, John was nonetheless in a vocational crisis by the time of his ordination. As we learn from St. Teresa of Avila in the book of her foundations, John was planning to leave the Carmelites for the Carthusians. Because John himself is silent on the matter, we can only speculate about the cause of this crisis. John, who had joined Carmel to satisfy his longing for union with God, probably reasoned, after four years at Salamanca, that his future as an ordained mendicant priest would probably be spent in academia, possibly even as a teacher at Salamanca. After only four years in religious life, this prospect would likely have threatened his desire for a contemplative life, making the silence and solitude of the Charter House appear as the only place where his longing for contemplation could be satisfied. It is uncertain when John began writing his own poetry. Most think his poetic activity began in the Toledo prison in 1577, 10 years later. However, it is altogether possible that his vocational crisis occasioned his first poem. Consider, for example, this poem written in the glossa or copla style. The title, Coplas del mismo hecha sobre un éxtasis de arte contemplación. Entreneme donde no supe y quedeme no sabiendo toda ciencia transcendiendo. And translated, that is, stanzas concerning an ecstasy experienced in high contemplation. I entered into unknowing, and there I remained unknowing, transcending all knowledge. And the stanzas continue in English translation. <clears throat> I entered into unknowing, yet when I saw myself there, without knowing where I was, I understood great things. I will not say what I felt, for I remained in unknowing, transcending all knowledge. That perfect knowledge was of peace and holiness, held at no remove in profound solitude. It was something so secret that I was left stammering, transcending all knowledge. I was so whelmed, so absorbed and withdrawn that my senses were left deprived of all their sensing, and my spirit was given an understanding while not understanding, transcending all knowledge. He who truly arrives there cuts free for himself. All that he knew before now seems worthless, and his knowledge so soars that he is left 
in unknowing, transcending all knowledge. This knowledge in unknowing is so overwhelming that wise men disputing can never overthrow it, for their knowledge does not reach to the understanding of not understanding, transcending all knowledge. Assuming that John had one of these ecstatic religious experiences during his seminary years, it would have reinforced his desire to leave the disputations of the academics at Salamanca, los sabios arguyendo, for the Carthusian solitude that represented to this young, inexperienced friar of 25 a way of knowing God directly that transcends scientific theology. No sabiendo toda ciencia transcendiendo. <clears throat> and now he meets Teresa of Avila. Teresa, or excuse me, John first met Teresa of Avila in Medina del Campo in the fall of 1567 when he had returned to his hometown to celebrate his first Mass. Teresa, who five years earlier had opened her first convent of her Carmelite reform in Avila, was then visiting her daughters in the reform's second convent in Medina. She now had permission from the Carmelite Father General to expand the reform to new convents of women and to extend the reform to the Carmelite friars. After they spoke for the first time in the parlor of the Medina convent, Teresa recognized in John all of the qualities she wanted in a friar for the reform of the men. She convinced him to delay his plan to enter the Carthusians and invited him to join her renewal, assuring him that he would find there the contemplation he desired without leaving Our Lady's order, as the Carmelites were referred to at that time. The next year, on November 28, 1568, John of the Cross, together with two other friars, Antonio de Jesus and Jose de Cristo, opened the first house of the Discalced or Reformed Carmelite Friars in Duelo, a small village in the province of Avila, not far from John's birthplace in Fontiveros. <clears throat> Three years later, in October 1571, when Teresa had become prioress of the Carmelite convent of the Incarnation in Avila, she arranged for John to be appointed confessor to the community. For the next two years, from 1572 to 1574, when Teresa completed her term as prioress in Avila and left for Andalusia to establish a new convent in Bayas de Sucura, John, although 27 years younger, assumed the guidance of Teresa's spiritual life. During these years, John became what Teresa later called him, the father of my soul. Also, in the community at the Incarnation, there was the custom of composing simple poems and songs, glosas, that were sung in recreation or at liturgy. 
A letter of Teresa to her brother Lorenzo in 1577 suggests that the mother's superior, Teresa, invited the father confessor, John, to join in this practice. During his tenure as confessor at the Incarnation, it is thus possible that John wrote a second poem, another glossa, entitled Coplas del Ama que Pena por Ver a Dios, or Stanzas of the Soul that Suffers with Longing to See God. So similar to Teresa of Avila's poem, Vivo Sin Vivir en Mi, or Aspirations Toward Eternal Life, these two poems conceivably were composed at the same time when John and Teresa were together in Avila, possibly for the same occasion. Both begin with the same estribillo, or thematic verse, possibly taken from a popular love song of the day, Vivo sin vivir en mí, y de tal manera espero que muero porque no muero. I live, but not in myself, and I have such hope that I die because I do not die. Both develop the same Pauline theme of longing to die to life in this world, to be truly alive in the life with God hereafter. Both follow the classical copla or glossiform with the estribillo que muero porque no muero repeated at the end of each stanza. Each poem has eight stanzas with seven lines each and each follow the same rhyming scheme. Listen to these similarities. Teresa writes in stanza five, only with surety I will die do I live, because in dying my hope in living is assured. Death, bringing life, do not tarry. I await you. I die because I do not die. Que muero porque no muero. Similarly, John writes in stanza seven of his poem, Lift me from this death, my God, and give me life. Do not hold me bound with these bonds so strong. See how I long to see you. My distress is so complete that I die because I do not die. Que muero porque no muero. Thus, by 1577, at the age of 35, John had probably already produced two of the poems that have come to us. Both are simple glossas in style, but each expresses the longing in John's heart for union with a transcendent God. Now, however, his life would change dramatically. His intense desire for union with God would soon be fully realized, and his poetic skills honed to express movingly this transforming experience. And so the, the scene now moves from Avila to Toledo to a prison experience and to his poetic flowering. On December 2nd, 1577, acting on orders from their superiors, 
John's Carmelite brothers forcibly removed him from the convent of the Incarnation in Avila and brought him to the Monastery of the Friars in Toledo, where he was placed under arrest in the monastery prison on the charge of disobedience. Two years earlier, in 1575, the Carmelite General Chapter of Piacenza ordered a stop to St. Teresa's reform movement. Although she was told to discontinue new foundations, Teresa believed she had both papal and royal approval to continue. For remaining loyal to Teresa, John was imprisoned in Toledo and ordered to renounce her reform. In prison, John was watched continually by one of the Toledo friars. After two months in a monastery cell, he was transferred to a room that was little more than a dark closet with barely enough light from a small window for him to read his breviary. His food was restricted to bread, water, and sardines. He was not allowed to bathe or change his clothes. He was forbidden to say daily mass. He was regularly brought before the community of more than 80 friars in its refectory at mealtime ordered to renounce Teresa's reform and beaten with the circular discipline when he refused. To pass the long hours of dark silence, John wrote poetry. His imprisonment began during Advent when the church prepares for the celebration of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. The prologue of the Gospel of John, which proclaims the mystery of the Incarnation, and which John probably knew by heart from reading it at daily mass, seemed a natural subject for both meditation and poetry. Using the simple romance format, John composed Romance sobre el Evangelio in principio erat verbum a cerca de la Santissima Trinidad, or Romance on the Gospel Text, in principio erat verbum, regarding the Blessed Trinity. The opening lines read, En el principio moraba el verbo, y en el Dios vivía en quien su felicidad infinita poseía, el mismo verbo Dios era que el principio se decía, el moraba en el principio y principio no tenía. You can catch the rhyme as you hear the, the, the Spanish. And the translation, in the beginning the word was, he lived in God and possessed in him his infinite happiness. That same word was God, who is the beginning. He was in the beginning and had no beginning. In this simple meter of eight or nine syllables per line, and the same rhyme at the end of even lines, John composed one long poem with nine individual romances which recall the communication between the divine persons of the Trinity, creation, the incarnation, and the birth of Jesus in the manger at Bethlehem, and includes images inspired by the Advent liturgy. O clouds rain down from your height, earth needs you, 
and let earth open, which has borne us thorns. Let it bring forth that flower that would be its flowering. His longest single poem, The Romance on the Prologue of the Fourth Gospel, continues for 310 lines with the familiar ia sound heard at the end of 157 lines. Despite its monotonous rhyme and meter, this romance conveys John's insight that God's primary motive for creation is to share with creatures the love of the Father and the Son in the life of the Trinity. In the third romance on creation, John poetically imagines the Father telling the Son his plan for creation. My son, I wish to give you a bride who will love you. Because of you, she will deserve to share our company and eat at our table the same bread I eat, that she may know the good I have in such a son, and rejoice with me in your grace and fullness. John's imprisonment dragged on beyond Christmastide into the early months of 1578. His superiors' continual demand that he leave Teresa's reform surely began to wear on his patience. Once again, he turned to the Bible and the Romancate form to help work through his growing resentment toward his brothers. Taking Psalm 137, Superflumina Babylonis, by the rivers of Babylon, Israel's lament during the Babylonian captivity, John transformed the psalm to lament his own exile and sublimate his bitterness toward his brother Carmelites. Following the same romance meter of eight or nine syllables per line, but now assonating the even lines with an Abba sound, John concluded his rendering of the ancient biblical poem in these words. O daughter of Babylon, miserable and wretched, blessed is he in whom I have trusted, for he will punish you as you have me, and he will gather his little ones and me who wept because of you at the rock who is Christ, for whom I abandon you. E a mi porque en ti lloraba a la piedra que era Cristo por el more months passed as his physical condition worsened and with no sign from his superiors of release from prison or rescue by his discalced brethren. John must have felt completely abandoned, not only by his Carmelite family, but also by God. To express his feelings of desolation, he again turned to poetry, this time using not the popular glossa or romance forms, but the more elevated lyra style. He wrote, E donde te escondiste, amado, y me dejaste con gemido, como el siervo huiste habiéndome herido. Salí tras ti clamando, y eras ido. And the English translation, 
of the first lines of his poem, Where have you hidden, beloved, and left me moaning? You fled like a stag after wounding me. I went out calling you, but you were gone. And yet, in the midst of this feeling of being abandoned by the one for whom he had given up everything to find, John also discovered in the sensory and spiritual deprivation of prison confinement that the beloved was already present within himself, inviting him to mutual self-surrender. In a later stanza, John continues, in the inner wine cellar I drank of my beloved. There he gave me his breast, and there he taught me a sweet and loving knowledge. And I gave myself to him, keeping nothing back. There I promised to be his bride. Like the two earlier poems written in captivity, John drew on the Bible for inspiration, this time from the Old Testament Song of Songs which included the theme of the lover losing and again finding the beloved. He composed 31 stanzas in Toledo. Later, several years after his imprisonment, he added a final eight stanzas to the poem and called it Cantico Espiritual, Canciones entre el alma y el esposo, the spiritual canticle, songs between the soul and the bridegroom. Eventually, he would revise the poem, rearranging some stanzas and adding another. He would also write a prose commentary on both redactions of the poem, which in 1584 he described as a, quote, commentary on the stanzas that deal with the exchange of love between the soul and Christ, its bridegroom, and which explains certain matters about prayer and its effects. In mid-August, after eight and a half months of confinement and nearly dead, John summoned what little energy he had left and escaped from prison on his own. He spent the next six years, excuse me, he spent the next six weeks recovering from his long ordeal in the Santa Cruz Hospital in Toledo, which the Carmelite nuns had arranged for him. Reflecting during his convalescence on the transforming experience of the previous nine months, John most likely composed here Noche Oscura, or The Dark Night, in a lira format. He would later call the eight stanzas of this lyric poem songs of the soul that rejoices in having reached the high state of perfection, which is union with God by the path of spiritual negation. Using the metaphor of night to symbolize his long period of sensory and spiritual deprivation in prison, John sings in the fifth stanza of how his night of negation occasioned his transformation in his loved one. O noche que guiaste, o noche amable mas que el alborada, o noche que juntaste 
Amado con amada, amada en el amado transformada. And in translation, English translation, O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. And in the final stanza eight, John rejoices in the effects of this transformation. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Noche Oscura, or The Dark Night, was John's masterpiece, recognized today as perhaps the most exquisite lyric poem in all Spanish literature and among the finest of world literature. The poem which captures his transforming mystical experience in Toledo also marks John's ultimate achievement as a poet. Thus, at the age of 37, he had come to union with God, the primary goal of his life. At the same time, he had fully developed his gifts as a literary artist. He was now both a mystic and a poet. And now let us look at the years after Toledo. The remaining 13 years of John's life from his escape in Toledo until his death in Ubeda, Andalusia, in 1591 at the age of 49, were years of intense administrative and pastoral activity. As the Theresian reform movement recovered from its jurisdictional problems and progressed to becoming an independent province within the Carmelite order in 1581, John served in various capacities as local superior, seminary rector, provincial definitor, vicar provincial of Andalusia, and vicar general of the Discalced Friars. So demanding were his administrative responsibilities that he stated in a letter to a Carmelite prioress in 1586 that, quote, the Lord gives us so much to do these days that we can hardly keep up with it all, end quote. John's administrative work went hand in hand with his pastoral activities, especially his ministry of spiritual guidance. His own experience in life had taught him that involuntary deprivation, the poverty of his childhood and his later imprisonment in Toledo, is not an obstacle to a full flowering of the spiritual life. On the contrary, he discovered, especially in Toledo, that these dark experiences, when embraced in faith, can open one fully to receive God's transforming love, which, as St. Paul wrote, is poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In Romans chapter 5. Now John confidently counseled others to embrace the voluntary deprivations of sensory and spiritual non-attachment or self-emptying 
so that they may receive the same transforming love in their own lives. Thus, in a letter to the community of Carmelite nuns in Beas de Sugura, John wrote, quote, The waters of inward delights do not spring from the earth. One must open toward heaven the mouth of desire, empty of all other fullness, that thus it may not be reduced or restricted by some mouthful of another pleasure, but truly empty and open toward him who says in the Psalms, Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Accordingly, John continues, those who seek satisfaction in something no longer keep themselves empty that God might fill them with his ineffable delight. End quote. During these busy years, John continued to write poetry. He composed five more glossas or coplas. I went out seeking love, a lone young shepherd, for I knew well the spring, without support, yet with support, and not for all of beauty. He also wrote a short Christmas carol, Latria Navideña. And among the more than 170 spiritual aphorisms, which he composed as holy cards for his directees, that are now called his sayings of light and love, John composed one in verse which summarizes his approach to the spiritual life. It goes this way. Suma de la perfección, ovido de lo criado, memoria del criador, atención a la interior y estarse amando al amado. Or in translation, the sum of perfection, forgetting created things, remembering the creator, attention to the interior life, and loving the beloved. John wrote only one lira or lyric poem during these years, Yama de Amor Viva, the living flame of love, that expresses the more intense moments of love in the soul's abiding union with God. The second stanza reads, O sweet cautery, O delightful wound, O gentle hand, O delicate touch that tastes of eternal life and pays every debt. In killing, you changed death to life. But John's greatest literary accomplishment during these years were the four masterful prose commentaries he wrote on his three lyric poems, Cantico Espiritual, the spiritual canticle, Noche Oscura, the dark night, and Yama de Amor Viva, the living flame of love. He wrote these commentaries in response to questions he was asked about the spiritual meaning of his symbols and images in the poems. The spiritual canticle, for example, was written at the request of Madre Ana de Jesus, prioress of the Discalced Carmelite nuns in Granada. In his commentary, John describes the entire spiritual journey of a Christian from the initial steps in the service of God to the ultimate state of perfection, which is spiritual marriage. He also attempts to show 
how his description corresponds to the traditional understanding of the Christian spiritual journey as passing through the three stages of the purgative way of beginners in prayer, the illuminative way of proficients or those making progress in prayer, especially contemplative prayer, and the unitive way of the perfect whose prayer has brought them to the spiritual marriage with Jesus Christ, the soul's bridegroom. The poem, The Dark Night, inspired two commentaries, The Ascent of Mount Carmel and The Dark Night, that were, as John writes in his prologue to The Ascent of Mount Carmel, requested by some of the persons of our holy order of the primitive observance of Mount Carmel, both friars and nuns, who asked me to write this work. Taken together as a literary diptych, these two commentaries explain the purification in both sense and spirit necessary for union with God, together with the active and passive nature of the entire spiritual way. That is, what the person who seeks union with God must actively do, and what God does in the person passively to bring about this divine union. The commentary on the living flame of love, written at the request of a laywoman, Doña Ana de Peñolosa, explains the Holy Spirit's unique action in the transformation of a person's life in God through love. John's prose in these commentaries is straightforward and didactic, <clears throat> geared to making clear to the reader his spiritual teaching. Although generally not considered of the same literary quality as his three major lyric poems, John's descriptive prose nonetheless at times reaches heights of spiritual inspiration and artistic beauty. Consider, for instance, his description in The Living Flame of Love of a person whose consciousness has been transformed in God's love, commenting on the effects of the delightful wound caused by the Holy Spirit, John writes, quote, The soul feels its ardor strengthen and increase, and its love becomes so refined in this ardor that seemingly there flow seas of loving fire within it, reaching to the heights and depths of the earthly and heavenly spheres, imbuing all with love. It seems to this soul that the entire universe is a sea of love in which it is engulfed. For conscious of the living point or center of love within itself, it is unable to catch sight of the boundaries of this love. End quote. During the last five years of his life, John, as far as we know today, began no new compositions in poetry or prose, although he continued to work on the revision of his commentary on the living flame of love. However, 27 of his surviving personal letters, either in whole or in part, were written during these years, most of them letters of spiritual guidance. One of these contains the last words that came from his pen. 
Writing to a Carmelite nun in Segovia within a few months before his death on December 14, 1591, he said, quote, Have a great love for those who contradict and fail to love you, for in this way love is begotten in a heart that has no love. God so acts with us, for he loves us that we might love by means of the very love he bears towards us, end quote. To appreciate St. John of the Cross as an author, as we reflect upon his significance for us today, we must understand that he was first and foremost a man of God, whose one desire throughout his entire life was to seek union with God alone, solo Deus, as he put it, only God. He attempted to put into words, first in poetry, then in prose, his experience of this transcendent God whose love transforms us into new creatures. Yet neither the images and metaphors of his poetry nor the clarity of his prose can adequately convey the mystery of his experience because it was ultimately ineffable beyond the reach of human language. But his efforts to express in writing what he experienced enriches us, the people of God, because even today, more than 400 years after his death, his words gradually draw us to desire the same experience for ourselves. Thus, if you are approaching the writings of St. John of the Cross for the first time, the above outline of his life suggests the order in which you might most profitably read his works. First, read all his poetry without the commentaries, perhaps several times. His images and metaphors may fire your imagination, inspiring in you a longing for God alone, which John himself expressed in his poem, Not for All of Beauty. He writes, I will never lose myself for that which the senses can take in here, nor for all the mind can hold, no matter how lofty, nor for grace or beauty, but only for I do not know what, which is so gladly found. Next, read his sayings of light and love and his letters. In these you will encounter John as a spiritual guide whose genuineness experiential knowledge of the spiritual journey and his, loves for, his love for his directees will likely move you to want to learn more from his spiritual teaching. Then plunge into his four major prose commentaries in this order. The spiritual canticle, preferably the second redaction or canticle B, which gives the final and total synthesis of his spiritual doctrine, the Ascent of Mount Carmel, The Dark Night, and The Living Flame of Love. Finally, read his special consuls to religious. And once you have worked your way through this order, or once you have worked your way following this order through his entire writings, and that's over 700 pages in the revised Kavanaugh Rodriguez American translation, you can return again and again as the Spirit moves you 
to those passages which you find most helpful. What will you find in the writings of St. John of the Cross? You will discover not only the beauty of his poetry and the richness of his spiritual treatises, but you will also find him drawing you into the Paschal mystery, the living, dying, and rising each day with our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. John will invite you to unite your efforts at self-emptying to the total self-emptying of Jesus Christ, which John considered our Lord's greatest work on earth. For through his death on the cross, Jesus brought about the reconciliation and union of the human race with God through grace, as John writes. John's writing will help you discover for yourself the truth of his conviction that the spiritual journey of the Christian, quote, does not consist in consolations, delights, and spiritual feelings, but in the living death of the cross, sensory and spiritual, exterior and interior, end quote. John, <clears throat> excuse me, drawn, drawn by John's writings into the Paschal mystery of our risen Lord, let us now conclude these remarks in prayer with John's own prayer of a soul taken with love, which is found among his sayings of light and love. He writes, Mine are the heavens, and mine is the earth. Mine are the nations. The just are mine, and mine the sinners. The angels are mine, and the mother of God, and all things are mine. And God himself is mine, and for me, because Christ is mine, and all for me. What do you ask then, and seek, my soul? Yours is all of this, and all is for you. Do not engage yourself in something less, or pay heed to the crumbs that fall from your Father's table. Go forth and exalt in your glory. Hide yourself in it and rejoice, and you will attain the petitions of your heart. Amen. Thank you. Well, you've been sitting attentively for a whole hour now. We're going to have some questions, and, uh, but first, just to, in your place, stand up, take a stretch, uh, uh, don't leave, uh, <laughs> but just to kind of change for a bit. Well, this is an opportunity to ask any questions you have, uh, questions for clarification or any critique you might have uh, 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 of the presentation or any uh, reflections that you might like to share with your experience of, of John or uh, his writings uh, or, or of what I have, have shared with you. Now I want to ask so that we can get this that uh, when you ask a question if you raise your hand and then the person with the mic will come over and give you the mic and if you speak into the mic then uh, we, can all, we can all hear it. 
after 9 11 the the Spanish government mm -hmm. sent us medieval artwork um, Spanish Spanish artwork Spanish artwork did you see that in New York it I was exhibited in a big cathedral in New York uh -huh. and you felt it knocked your eyes out uh -huh. and you felt that special radicalism totalism of devotion beyond anything the rest of the West has ever seen or lived in these artworks. They, the government scoured the country for the best they had yes. to console yes. the American nation. Did you see that? Yes, I did see that. Uh, come to think of it, if, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it was... Cathedral of y New York. Yes, it, it, it took... If it's the same one that I saw in Washington at the, the National Gallery of Art, they took selected artworks of uh, uh, many of the saints, both John of the Cross and Ignatius of Loyola actually were, were pictured, but some of the artwork of the crucifixion and, and the graphicness of the suffering body of Christ. The, these, were, these were then brought to the, the United States. General artwork produced through the centuries in Spain. Yes. Mm -hmm. As a, a devotion that's so fierce. Spanish Christianity has a devotion that is so fierce. So fierce. Yes. So total. So total. Like the, there is nothing else to compare it with. And you saw it in what they sent us to console the nation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with the art. With the art, right. Uh, to console us in what we had lost through the attack on 9-11, uh, excuse me, yes, yes. Do, do people recognize the art exhibit that uh, she's referring to? It, I know it was done in Washington and it was, it was a, a rather small exhibit because there's probably no more than 50 paintings or uh, sculptures and crucifixes. But uh, it was probably, you, you've seen it in the demonstrations uh, of Spanish art over the years. Uh, crucifixions that are very graphic. Uh, um, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the suffering of Christ, uh, the... In a sense, you, and even the saints, for example, I think this is why even John of the Cross uh, was selected as one of them, as well as Ignatius of Loyola, uh, a, a total gift of self to, uh, to God. And, and so uh, I think perhaps it was the invitation of the Spanish government to, um, to trust, total trust in God and submission to God. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, over here. I was wondering, um, do you find in your study of St. John of the Cross 
a uh, in his spiritual journey a uh, coming together of his um, struggle between the active, the pastoral, and the contemplative. Um, I think we all struggle with that. I mean, you know, sitting before the Placid Sacrament in, right. in church, okay. you know, you just don't want to leave or mm -hmm. sitting in contemplation. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, that was in the beginning of his life. And then at the end of his life, you talked about the um, his often frustration with all the administrative and pastoral duties. Do you, do you find in his work any kind of trying to bring those two together and resolving that and finding, finding a union by which he could live? He could, he could live at peace with the union of the contemplative and the active, in a, in a sense. Well, I really think his whole life was a story about that resolution and that, and that coming together of that, that integration. Uh, because if you, if you follow the, the life, uh, uh, as a young friar, he wanted to go to the Carthusians. Uh, Teresa said, come with me and you'll have what you want uh, with the Carthusians, uh, but you can stay within the Carmelites. And after that, the only real solitude he had was the nine months in the prison uh, in Toledo. And then he had... Uh, uh, he had about six months before he died where he got to a, a contemplative monastery. And the rest of the time, actually, he was involved in uh, the pastoral and administrative work of, of the order. And so he really had to come to uh, uh, a, um, an integration of that desire for contemplation and uh, uh, the activity that he realized that God asked of him. Well, I think the integration is in his surrender to God's love because he realizes that in that surrender, you know, God gives what he needs and it's in that surrender, you know, that he finds the union with God, which is the, in a sense, the goal of the contemplative life. But, you know, uh, but it's, uh, it's not separate from uh, what God asks of us to do uh, in, in our day-to-day -day life. So I think he was able to come to, and I think his writings do, uh, do recognize that, that uh, the real um, union with God is union according, the union of one's will with the will of God. And, and as one lives in that and grows in that day in and day out, then one is open to whatever it is that God wants each day. And I do think that that becomes very, very clear in, you know, in his writings. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, and the interesting thing, particularly in the Ascent of Mount Carmel in the Dark Night, it's a diptych work. It's, the, it's his commentary on the, on the, the poem, The Dark Night. But it, it underscores that the, this, this journey is a collaborative effort between God and the soul. You know, we do what uh, we uh, are inspired to do to seek this union, but then God also prepares us and purifies us for what needs to happen so that this union can really take place.
And I think that that's where he, he really, I mean, he, he was, he desired deeply, I think, a, a solitary life, but I think he was able to accept that in terms of union with God and transformation with God, it was the spirit within him that brought about this, uh, this union, uh, ultimately this, this union with God.